This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are in 1 Corinthians again, and uh, I I mean, the hits just keep on coming. These folks, uh, it is just a very interesting church with all kinds of interesting practices and ideas, and we're going to see more about that today. Now we're going to see an issue where they've just swung completely to the other side on one of their practices. They're going to surprise you. So we're in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 16. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can take uh, one from the chair in front of you, and I'd actually really encourage that so that you can track along. If you're new here, what we do is we just read the passage and then kind of go through and look at each verse and see what it kind of means and how it all fits together and then how we can apply it to our lives. So we're not just, this isn't just about me giving kind of a self-help talk about some of my ideas. Uh, we really want to just see what does the scripture say? So if you're able to read along, you'll be able to see if we're saying what the scripture says or not. And that's page 556. So let's uh, read this passage. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 to 16. This is God's word to us. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise... The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. For if the unbeliever, unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. If such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your scripture, which gives us all that we need to know. We believe that your scripture is sufficient for the matters of life and faith. And we pray today that you would speak to us. We pray that you would grant clarity to us on matters 
And Lord, as your word is a mirror, I know right now that this mirror, we look into it and we see in each and every one of our hearts and lives failures along the way. And I pray today that the gospel, Lord, would minister grace and forgiveness in our failures and power for change that we may live our lives as you designed in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the strange phenomena, phenomena of our age that would have never been true, say, in my parents' age, uh, is that we are used to listening to people's phone calls. So all the time around us, because of cell phones, people are just having personal conversations in public. Now think about this, 20, 25 years ago, the only people I would ever hear have a phone call would be my family, they'd be on the phone in the house, or maybe if I'm at someone else's house, hear them have a phone call, or maybe a coworker. But now if you're standing in the grocery store line, you are hearing full conversations about what happened last Friday night, what we're doing this Friday night. I mean, if you are in the mall, if you're in a restaurant, wherever you are, people are walking around and you're hearing conversations. And normally I just completely turn them off. I mean, it's like white noise. It's so familiar. It's like white noise. I never even listen to it <clears throat> unless someone has something very interesting to say. <laughs> so recently, uh, I'm in a coffee shop and I'm working, got my laptop out, and I'm sitting by a guy uh, who looks to be in his 30s. Uh, he looks very fit and very athletic. Um, just by way of illustration, think of me, young, fit, athletic. And uh, <laughs> that really shouldn't have elicited that much laughter. But uh, at any rate, so he is sitting next to me and I'm just working and I, I'm not listening to anything about his phone call until I slightly overhear these words. Well, um, I was an NFL player and so I'm trying to get some information about my pension. So I went ahead and kept working on my laptop, but I'm kind of doing that right there. He said, I'm kind of doing that right there. And I start, I don't want to, okay, I'm just being honest here. I don't want to, but I'm thinking, okay, I can't look, but who, he's an NFL player, or he was. So then he says his name. To my shame, I turned my computer slightly so that he couldn't see, <laughs> and I Googled him. Now, really, if you want another church with another pastor, I understand. I'm not normally a creeper, but I really did find out, but I'm turned. So who is this guy? And I get his name. And while he's talking, I have history about this man. I have context. And I also have one side of the conversation. And I'm realizing based, I can see how long he played in the NFL. And then I can hear what's going on on the other line. And I can reconstruct the conversation. And as he's saying, well, I played this many years. Well, how long until you have to be uh, you know, vested in the plan. And I can realize that what's going on is this guy is finding out, I think, this guy's finding out on the other end of the phone that either he doesn't have access to the NFL pension or it's much less than he was expecting because of his brief time in the NFL. I was able to hear what was happening in this guy's life situation from one side of a conversation and from some history and I'm embarrassed, and I don't do it often, and I won't do it again until I'm sitting by an NFL player. <laughs> 
And that is exactly how we're going to approach the text today. Because what happens in 1 Corinthians 7 is the text changes. In in chapter 1 through 6, Paul says, Chloe's people told me some things about you. Chapter 1, I think verse 10 or 11. I got a report from Chloe's people. This is what she told me. And he starts addressing them. Now we go to one side of a phone conversation. And Paul is going to start responding to a letter they wrote to him. We don't have that letter. But we can see what Paul says, and it's like that one side of the phone conversation. We can sort of understand what's happening in their context. Also, if we look at history, the Google search, if we look at history, we can piece together what's going on, and we look at the rest of Corinth, uh, the Corinthian letter, we can piece together what is going on. So he's shifting to answer their questions. Look at verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, unquote. That is Paul. So you need to picture Paul in a, in a coffee shop on a cell phone with the Corinthians. You only have one side, but you know what they said. And he's saying to them, okay, I got your letter. Now I'm going to address what you wrote to me. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, let me give you my thoughts, God's thoughts on that. You may have thought that that verse was just a statement that Paul was making. Paul is making the exact opposite statement that it is very good for someone to have sex in a certain context. He's not saying it's bad to have sex. The Corinthians are. And so we're we're learning what he is responding now to their questions. And this is going to happen a number of times. Look at verse 23. Now concerning the betrothed, Okay, so you wrote me about the betrothed. I'm going to answer that. Look at 8.1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Okay, you asked about that. Now I'm going to address that. So this is what we have. We're hearing one side of a conversation. So what we don't have here, Paul is going to talk about sex. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about celibacy in the single life. And he's going to talk about divorce. What we don't have is Paul saying, let me just tell you everything about marriage. Let me tell you everything about divorce. We don't have that. We have one section of Paul addressing. So we have to say, what is he saying to the Corinthians? What's their context? And then we have to make application as broadly as we can for ourselves. Here's what he's ultimately saying. He's telling them that both singleness and the married calling are gifts. Look at verse seven. I wish that all were as myself. Uh, I'm sorry. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Verse nine. Um, uh, No, verse eight. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. So Paul is saying some are gifted for marriage. Some are gifted for singleness. Whatever your state is, it's a gift. And then here's what he's going to say. You should receive that gift and be a giver. That is ultimately the theme that's going on here. So I've got three points and they're full sentences. They're not words. They don't rhyme. I'm sorry, but it's as clear as I can be. Here's the first one. The gift of marriage requires giving to your spouse. Now, they're going to all be parallel statements, but they're not short. The gift, if you're writing, write this down. The gift of marriage requires giving to your spouse. Here's the context. Some in the Corinthian church are advocating abstaining from sex, even in marriage because he addresses sex and marriage. So they're saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, even in marriage. I don't know how that doctrine got sold. I don't know who bought that book or attended that seminar, but people in Corinth are are advocating 
this reality, that celibacy is best even in marriage. Now, why? I thought we've talked weeks about the liberality of the sexual ethic in Corinth. Last week, Rob taught us that, that, the, that in Corinth, Paul says that they are going down, members of the church are having sex with temple prostitutes that are worshiping false gods. So if they're that loose sexually, how in the world is somebody saying now don't have sex even in marriage? That sounds great. How could that be in the same city? Here's the problem. Whenever you make a sharp distinction between the body and the spirit, and you don't look at people integrated, body and the spirit, and you say spirit is good and material is bad. Spirit is good and body is bad. You can end up one of two ways. We read last week, they said, the spirit is good. The body is, doesn't even matter. Food is for the body and the body is for food. So that means my spirit is good. My body doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want with my body and I want to have sex with, whom, with whomever. I want to commit sexual immorality. It doesn't matter. It's just the body. It's like eating a meal. The same view, the spirit is good, the body is bad, can say, so don't feed the body. You could say the body, the body doesn't matter, so feed it. Or you could say, don't feed it. You could say, the spirit is good, but I'm on such a spiritual plane that I don't want to even have sex with my spouse. We're so spiritual, and that is so sort of earthy that I'm not even going to have Sex. So the same doctrine can land you in one of two places on the left or the right. Liberal sexuality or ascetic sexuality or rigorous sexuality or deprived sexuality, however you want to say it. Both extremes are in Corinth. So Paul corrects this view by explaining that sex within marriage is good. Sexual immorality is bad. And he says in verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, which is sex with someone you're not married to, each man should have his own wife and each woman have her own husband is what it says. So the verb to have here describes the sexual relationship. He's saying don't be immoral but have your spouse, have sex with your spouse. Don't be immoral, but have sex within marriage. So the first idea he says here is that marriage, we said is a gift, verse seven. So you are to give, you are to have sex with your spouse. Next he describes a fundamental truth of marriage. Marriage is about giving to your spouse. I'm speaking broadly. Marriage is about giving to your spouse. God's design for marriage is a love characterized by giving to the other rather than demanding the other give to us. And so he says in verse two, uh, verse three, the husband should give, verse seven, it's a gift. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Conjugal means marital. And in this context, conjugal doesn't mean sexual intercourse, but it means marital. And in this context, it, it's referring to marital sex. So he's saying, listen, you, you, the husband should be orienting himself not towards his rights, but rather towards giving to and pleasing his wife. Equally, the wife is not to orient herself towards her rights, but towards giving to and pleasing her husband. Marriage is about the other. That's why he says the husband should give and consider her rights. He, and the wife should give and consider the husband's rights. Give him or her 
we actually could say her sexual due or his sexual due. This is part of the marriage relationship. In chapter 13, he's going to say, love does not insist on its own way. Love gives. Uh, it gives both in, inside and outside of the bedroom. And most of life is outside of the bedroom. But because they said, should we not be having sex in marriage because we're really spiritual? So he's got to address giving in the sexual relationship. And he takes it a deeper level. Why is marriage about giving sexually and not abstaining sexually? We'll look at verse four. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Genesis 2 teaches us that God creates marriage to make a husband and wife one. So a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, which describes um, a spiritual reality that when you're married, you're not two, you're one. I mean, you don't lose all of your individuality, but you're one unit. And secondly, the way that that is, one of the ways that's demonstrated in a primary way is the sexual union where the two are one. So we're made one at marriage. Um, and that one flesh relationship entails kind of a spiritual and physical celebration of coming together as one physically, and it entails a mutual surrender to the other for the good of the other. I love the way um, New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce said this. He said, by the marriage vow, each relinquishes the exclusive right to his or her body and gives the other a claim to it. At the marriage vow, what you are saying is I'm giving up a lot, but I'm part of what I'm giving up in becoming one with you is I'm giving up exclusive claim on my own body uh, and I'm giving you claim to it. That's what Paul says. Verse four, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, that doesn't mean that the spouse, one spouse, is to treat the other as an object of sexual gratification and relate as a taker. The whole context is about being a giver. It's about willingly, joyfully, freely in the oneness of marriage, recognizing this claim on myself and giving myself to my spouse. It's not about taking, it's about giving. The lifestyle of love directs our lives as a married couple to be giving to the other, orienting around the other, dying to self and, and seeking to love, serve, and bless, encourage, help the other. It's about putting my selfishness away and being selfless for your good. That's the nature of marriage, whether we're talking about doing the dishes whether we're talking about our work lives, whether we're talking about how we spend our money or whether we're talking about sex. It's all the same. It's all an other's orientation. So Paul is saying, if you're saying in marriage that we're not gonna have sex, you are depriving, you're fundamentally taking one aspect of your life and you're no longer viewing like yourself as a giver. That's why he says in verse five, do not deprive one another. He says, the husband does not have authority over his body, the wife does, so don't deprive one another. You're actually, what you're doing is not spiritual at all. 
It's not honoring God at all is what he says. So you are to give to the other. Now, I'm gonna make a point here that's not the primary point, it's the Google search, it's a historical point. It's not the primary point, but it's a very important point for us to understand with regard to gender, with regard to marriage, with regard to sexuality. For historical context, in the Roman world of the first century, and the Corinthians have a Greek background, but Rome rules all, so you could say Greco-Roman or Roman world. Sexual fulfillment culturally was not usually centered in marriage. Here's how life worked. Many men married, not everyone, but many, maybe most men married for stability and to have children. Usually women married at about age 12 so that they could have as many children, have as many pregnancies, there's a high mortality rate of children. So to have as many pregnancies as possible, the, the husband may have been 20 or a little older, something like that. And he married for, to establish a family and to have a stable place in the society and more kids was a better thing for economic reasons, social reasons, etc. But it was extremely common absolutely understood and legal, not frowned upon, to then pursue sexual intimacy outside the marriage. So a guy typically in this culture would have had sex with a mistress. Very common if he was a free man to have sex with slaves. There was many slaves and you owned a slave sexually should you choose. So very common to have sex with slaves. We read last week that part of the cultural worship was to have sex with prostitutes at the temple. There was a thousand temple prostitutes um, in, in, the, in the largest temple in Corinth. Um, and to even have sex with men, usually younger men. So it had been very common for a man to have sex with a teenage boy uh, that, was ex- that was completely accepted. In the culture, something very different to today. So what Paul is saying is absolutely earth shattering. Absolutely. He says the husband should have an exclusive relationship and the wife has authority over his body for her sexual pleasure. There's nothing mentioned here about childbearing or anything like that. That's not what's primarily being talked about. She has a right and it is his obligation to be with her, not to be with anyone else. People think the Bible has a repressive ethic against women. The original readers would have read this and would have said, Paul is a liberal feminist for what he is saying here in that culture. Absolutely. He is saying that women are not just the, the wife is not just obligated to please her man, but, and while he's out doing all other kinds of stuff, but she has exclusive rights. Now, Paul does narrow the scope of partners. God does. He says it's an exclusive relationship with one man and one woman. So the marriage is, is, is somewhat made exclusive, but he's saying there is mutuality among husband and wife, and that is completely countercultural in that culture. He, he, he is saying to the guys, this is a, a wake-up call if you get converted in, uh, in Corinth. It's a wake-up call to you. He's not just saying, guys have dinner at home, stop eating out figuratively at the various restaurants in the city. He's not just saying have dinner at home. He said, no, you need to cook the dinner and you need to you know, serve the dinner 
to your wife for her pleasure. He's saying not, not just stay home, but focus on her. Now, let me give you two quotes from scholars on this point that make the point, because I think it's a very important point, especially for women and how the church is unfairly criticized as being misogynistic, anti, anything like that. Um, One scholar, Thistleton, Anthony Thistleton says this, in the ancient world, sexual intimacy was regarded either in some cases as a duty for the sake of procreation, to have children, or in other cases as a pleasurable experience for men that women provided. Paul appears to be the first writer to suggest that such pleasure could be mutual. Otherwise, it remains unintelligible that he urges both men and women equally to stop depriving each other of what is the rightful due of the other. Another guy who's a pastor, but a pastor with a PhD, uh, Stephen Um, said this, in a patriarchal society, meaning the Roman society, in a patriarchal society where male sexual dominance was part and parcel of maintaining one's status and position, where the needs and desires of women were rarely considered, Paul's teaching was radically progressive. Radically progressive, not fundamentalist, not cultural, uh, you know, not, not culturally dated, radically progressive in that culture. And I might add, in most cultures, all the way up, I mean, you know, I don't know, till 1950s America, I, I'm not sure. I don't, didn't do a study of all of culture, the Victorian era, era and everything else. But, but in this culture, which I have studied, uh, what he's saying is radical. Marriage is a gift about giving, so don't deprive one another, Corinthians, he says. Now, he makes one exception, and it's a concession. He says, do not deprive one another, verse 5, except perhaps by agreement, except by agreement. So you can't have one, he's saying you can't have one spouse be hyper-spiritual and say, I'm just connecting with the Holy Spirit, and I'm on a sexual fast and deal with it. Absolutely un- unacceptable. You can only, you cannot deprive one another except by agreement. So if you both agree for a limited time, this can't be until 2020. No, it's a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. So if there's a spiritual reason behind it, you could do that. But then come together again. He's really quick. Don't, don't, you guys are saying it's good not to be together. Get back together. Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Corinthians, you think you're being hyper-spiritual, that you are so spiritual you're not having sex with your spouse. I'm telling you, you're setting yourself up for Satan to take you down. You're not spiritual, you're foolish, is what he tells them. And Satan's gonna take you down. Now, Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. And I believe that verse, most scholars believe that verse goes with what he just said, not what he's about to say. So, I'm conceding this, but it's not a command. You don't ever have to take a break is what he's saying. It's not a command, but I'm saying if if you want to do that, it's okay. It's a concession. The gift of marriage requires giving to the spouse in all areas of life. Why am I just talking about this? Because that's all this text talks about, but it goes every dimension of our lives. Secondly, the gift of singleness requires giving to God and others. The gift of marriage requires giving to the spouse. The gift of singleness requires giving to God and others. And what I'm really gonna do is give you a trailer for a preview of a sermon that's coming right now. Coming attractions, eat your popcorn and enjoy this. Um, 
He says, I wish that you, verse seven, were all as as myself as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to speak to the widows and and those who are unmarried, probably means the never married. Um, so Paul was unmarried, and, I, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait and address what he says in two weeks. So in two weeks, we'll cover verses 25 through 40, and he addresses singleness. But the preview is this. He said it's good to be single because then you can, be, you can give. He prefers that. That's his, that's his calling, and he said, I appreciate my calling. You can give to the Lord. You can give to his kingdom. You can give to others in an undistracted way. That is impossible if you have a spouse and if you have children. That's what he says. So if you think about Paul's life, he never could have done what he, is, he had done if he was married with children. I mean, he's going city to city, which he could have taken a family along, but he's going city to city and getting beaten, having shipwrecks, going in and out of prison for preaching the gospel. He's a madman. He's radical. He's bold. Well, he's not going to bring his wife and kids uh, into those dangerous environments Uh, But because he was single, he could come and go as he pleased and as God called him to. So he says singleness is a gift that keeps you from family entanglements. So remember what we just said, when you vow to be married, you belong to your spouse, not just sexually, but you belong to your spouse with regard to your time. Your time is not your own. Your time is the Lord's and it's your spouse's. You're one. So you, you, you give your spouse your time, your money is for your spouse, your activities are shared with your spouse, your conversation is with your spouse, children are with your spouse. If you have young children, your household upkeep and your survival is with your spouse. Your problems are with your spouse and when your spouse has problems, they are your problems. Paul doesn't have any of that. So he can give his life, and marriage is great. I'm just telling you what Paul says. I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful to be married. Um, and my wife provides none of those barriers, but uh, I'm sure I provide plenty to her. But you hear what I'm saying? He's, he's actually going to say that kind of stuff, that if you're single, you don't have the entanglements. Um, now, there's tremendous blessing in companionship and unity and, and uh, raising another generation. So there's tremendous blessings in being married. But there's also tremendous blessings in being single. It's a gift is what he says as well. So that's why he says, if you are, he recommends seven, I, uh, verse seven, I wish all were as I myself am, but each to his own, each to his own gift. He says, um, I think it's good. Verse seven, uh, I say is good for them to remain single as I am. You, so just stay the way you are. Uh, if, if you're gifted, but if you're not gifted for that, if you can, how do you know if you're not gifted? Well, one way may be you can't exercise self-control. In other words, you don't feel uh, a gift for lifelong uh, celibacy and you have sexual desire. Doesn't mean that a, a single person, doesn't mean Paul never had sexual desire or temptation. Doesn't mean a single person would never have sexual desire or temptation. Doesn't mean that. But it does mean that you could live a life of self-control and a life of contentedness. And just as married people have challenges, that might be one of your challenges, but you have faith for that and feel called to that. If that's you, then God could be calling you to a life of celibacy. Or if God has not provided a spouse for you at this time, he has called you to currently to celibacy. 
Uh, but Paul's saying, I wouldn't, wouldn't even pursue it unless you don't feel gifted in one way would be your uh, sexual desire. But ultimately he's saying, hey, celibacy, we're going to see it can be a life filled with relationships, filled with companionship, filled with service and ministry to others. And we need to restore that view. Celibate people, single people in the kingdom of God and in the church are not second class. Jesus was single and the apostle Paul is saying it's single and he's going to make arguments for why it's arguably, if that's the way you're gifted, you've got a better life. He's going to make that argument. We're doing a marriage conference this summer. I'm married. I love Ginger, but I'm going to tell you what he says. He says here that we are, we have so emphasized marriage and made single people feel like second-class citizens in the church that we're clueless on what the scripture says, what Paul would say. We need to elevate the life of both saying singleness is a gift. And if, and also if the Lord is provides a spouse for you and a calling there, that's a gift too. Let's celebrate both. And let's, uh, let's make ministry opportunity for both. We're just a little out of balance in the evangelical culture, I think, on that one. Next, he's going to say this. The gift, and here's the sentence. So the gift of single uh, marriage requires, uh, the gift of marriage requires giving to your spouse. The gift of singleness requires giving to God and others. And here's the last one. The gift of mixed marriage And that means one of the spouses is a believer and one is an unbeliever. I don't know what else to call that. I'm calling it a mixed marriage. I don't know what to call it. But the gift of mixed marriage requires continuing to give to your spouse. Continuing to give to your spouse. In other words, don't divorce. That's what the next section is if you are married to an unbeliever. So to review, married people, give yourself sexually to your spouse. Unmarried, stay as you are. If you're gifted to do so, um, if that, or if that's where God is called you to right now. And if you're married, stay married. And if you're married to an unbeliever, stay married to that unbeliever. So the first thing he's going to do is he's going to address people who are married to believers. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So now is he going to start giving his own personal advice? No. He's going to quote the Lord. So what he's about to do is explain what Jesus taught on divorce. First Corinthians is written before the gospels. So Paul doesn't have a copy of Matthew on his lap. Paul can't say, turn to Matthew 19. Paul has oral tradition of what Jesus said. And we're, I'm going to show you what Jesus said. And you're going to see that what Paul says here is a brief summary of what Jesus said. And Jesus was addressing to believers that are married. Paul's going to raise a whole new issue that Jesus never addressed. So first of all, marriage to believers. Um, and we see what, uh, what he says when he addresses um, believing couples in Matthew 19. So Matthew 19, this is Jesus speaking. Matthew 19, verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful? Okay, so we're talking about the law. Gentiles don't believe the law. So he's not saying, hey, what about a Gentile? This is, these are Jews. The Pharisees are saying... According to the Old Testament, which we all believe here, or Christians believe, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, Genesis 2, 24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, because you're hard, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, 
except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Okay, so that's what Jesus said about divorce. So look how Paul summarizes that. To the married, I give this charge, I but not the Lord. So I'm going to pass on to you what the Lord taught about married people. The wife should not separate from her husband. You see the verb separate? It's the exact Greek verb that Jesus uses when he says, um, verse 6 of 19, uh, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So no one should separate a married couple. Wives should not separate. He's just saying what what Jesus said from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Uh, assuming that person is a believer. So he says um, in the same thing, he says, uh, whoever divorces his wife, Jesus, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Paul summarizes that and says, you you should not marry anyone else if you're divorced, but you should be reconciled to your husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. So he just gives this, this teaching of Jesus. He doesn't give the exception clause that Jesus gives in Matthew 19, which is if there is sexual immorality, uh, the, the person doesn't have to divorce, but would have a right to divorce if their spouse commits sexual immorality, has physically has sex with someone besides their spouse. He, could, he or she could do that uh, and would therefore be free from that marriage and presumably free to remarry. Now, Paul says to the rest, verse 12, to the rest, I, not the Lord. Now I'm gonna give you a teaching that Jesus didn't give. I'm gonna talk about if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So the Pharisees are saying, what does the Old Testament teach for us as believers? Jesus is saying, I mean, Peter, uh, (laughs) Paul is saying, here's the context. We're all in Roman culture. We're all Greek background. We're all pagans. I came in and preached the gospel. One of the people got saved and their spouse didn't. And so the Corinthians are likely asking, what do we do about that? I mean, should I divorce my unbelieving spouse? It was easy to get a divorce in Corinth, very easy. Very easy, and actually male or females could divorce. It's very easy, Should, should I? divorce my unbelieving spouse. I mean, in some cases, it'd be very difficult if one of the spouses starts saying, we're living a totally different lifestyle. We're following Jesus now as a couple. And in a pagan culture, whoa, who is this? No, wait, why is our whole life changing? You're not the person I married. You're not the person I fell in love with. Now you got all, now you're connected to this church and all these people. And that's very difficult. And so the Corinthians may have been saying, hey, can we just go ahead and divorce? It's easy to divorce. Can we divorce? And then maybe we can marry another Christian. Wouldn't that be better? Because this person's actually hindering my faith. Uh, this person's hindering my church life. This person doesn't get me. Uh, and now what I used to do with this person in life, uh, which I used to think was great, now repels me. And by the way, we've got kids and I don't want my kids to be influenced like this. I want my kids to be... so. Wouldn't it be better to follow Jesus than follow an unbelieving spouse? That's perhaps what they were asking. And they're probably asking this because he addresses it. Could my marriage to this unbeliever, couldn't it even taint or somehow make me spiritually unclean? Or our kids? So Paul says, well, if you are married to an unbeliever, and she consents to live with you, you should not divorce her. No, stay married, he says. If a woman has a husband, again, totally mutual, who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, verse 13. Stay married to the unbeliever. 
These people couldn't have been converted very long at all because he just brought the gospel to them recently. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Stay in the marriage. Why? Because if you keep giving, if you keep giving, living a life of giving, it will have an effect on your family. Your husband is made holy by this. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean he's converted. No one is saved through marriage. We're only saved through faith in Christ uh, purely because what Christ has done for us. That's the only way any of us are Christians. So he's not saying that you will somehow, that your spouse will be saved. The word holy means set apart. So he's saying there is a benefit, there is a setting apart benefit that comes when the influence of the gospel comes into a home, into a marriage or into a parenting relationship. There is an influence, a sanctifying influence that comes by the gospel. There's a blessing to the unbeliever, married to a believer. There's a blessing to the children in a mixed marriage like that. There's a blessing that comes when the gospel is brought into the family. I am living proof. I can testify to this because my mom who is with the Lord was a believer and raised us, shared the gospel with us. All four of her kids are adults like me, my siblings, all are converted. All are actively participating in local churches. My dad is not, he's living, but he was not a believer and is not a believer. So he's not converted yet, but all of her kids were affected by her influence. Um, she wasn't limited. Her kids weren't limited by that. So I'm, I'm an example of what he is talking about here. So their concern is if I'm married to some believer, am I somehow made unclean? It's like their, oh, I don't know how to say it. Is the darkness of unbelief like fade into the light of belief and like dim my light? Paul says, no, the exact opposite happens. Here's how John Calvin commented on this verse. He says, the godliness of the one does more to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other does to make it unclean. You're going to bring holiness into the relationship. Your family is going to be set apart, even if your spouse resists you. There's going to be a setting apart. There's going to be an advantage. There's going to be a benefit, a blessing, an influence, a setting apart of the gospel for your unbelieving spouse and for your children is what he says. Maybe it's helpful to understand these verses and think about a, not exactly a parallel passage, but one that I think somewhat addresses, well, totally addresses the same idea. That's 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3, Peter is writing to, as part, he talks to wives who have unbelieving husbands. And he says this, it's a mixed marriage. Verse 1, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Without a word, but by your life. So what he's saying is in the marriage relationship, if your spouse is an unbeliever, if you, the best you can, very hard, very difficult, very challenging. But by God's grace, if you cannot argue about Jesus, not have theological debate all the time, not condemn your spouse all the time, not say get saved all the time, not accidentally have preaching playing in the background, shouting through the house all the time. If you can, by your pure conduct, 
And by showing that the gospel's made a difference in me, even without a word that could be convincing to him, not in every case. And if you have a spouse that's an unbeliever, it doesn't mean that you're like a really bad person. And if you be a little more holy, they'd be converted. The Holy Spirit has to give them new life. But these are just principles. So Paul says, stay married because you can have an influence on the other. Peter says, your influence could lead them to Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your life? So it's not easy. I don't mean to act like it's easy. And we need to have the utmost respect and care and prayer support and community for those in our midst who have an unbelieving spouse who doesn't come and doesn't participate. We need to, we need to shoulder that and care for them and hold up their arms, so to speak, and, 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 which is an Old Testament image of prayer. We, we need to support and rally around them. Because I'm not saying it's easy, but, but the Bible says don't divorce because the Lord wants through your serving, who knows what might happen. Now, what if they want a divorce? So it's Corinthian, you're in Corinth, one gets saved, the other doesn't, easy to get a divorce. The unbeliever says, are you crazy? You're a nut. I am not Jesus, church, this is crazy. Uh, I'm out of here. Okay, what if the unbeliever wants a divorce? Verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. I mean, what are you going to do? That's, that's okay. Um, at that point, you are serving Jesus and it cost you your marriage, which would have been, I'm sure, common in places like this. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. What does that mean? You're not in bondage. You're not enslaved to the marriage. You're free is what he's saying. God has called you to peace. You are free. And so Paul introduces a second exception for divorce and remarriage. The first Peter, te- uh, the first uh, Jesus teaches, and I got to get the character straight here. I don't know what it is. Sorry. Uh, the first Jesus teaches and says, you must remain married. If you're divorced and you remarry, you commit adultery. Unless your spouse committed sexual sin, then you are free to divorce. And most Bible interpreters, and we would hold, agree that you're free to remarry. And Peter, uh, Paul gives us a second one. And Paul tells us that if your unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, unbelieving spouse leaves you, then you're free. You're free. You're not enslaved. You can only be married to a believer by choice. So if they're gone, um, you're not going to remarry them as an unbeliever. Uh, so you, uh, you're free to remarry two primary grounds. Okay. How do we apply all of this material? Well, God's calling to married believers, to single people, and to believers married to unbelievers is high. What we read is not culturally acceptable. It is a high standard. Each calling is a gift, and each person is to live a, live a life of giving. It's extraordinary responsibility to be married. As, you, as we read, you're not your own. It's extraordinarily responsibility to live a celibate life as a single person and use your life for the glory of God, to take your lack of entanglements and, in, and sort of willingly entangle yourself in serving others and honoring God. And truthfully, none of us have lived up to this standard to sacrificially live our lives sacrificially for the glory of God and for the good of others. None of us have lived up to this, but thankfully someone has. Someone has. Jesus lived a life of perfect sacrifice 
living for the good of others. And he ultimately laid down his life, taking on our sins sacrificially for our good. He, he sacrificed to the point of death, death on a cross where our sins were put upon him and he died as our substitute and raised to defeat the power of our sins. He took the punishment. Jesus died for every moment you have been self-focused in your marriage. Every moment. Jesus died for every moment that you have been self-focused as a single person. Jesus died for every time that you have grumbled or complained in your heart, in your mind, or with your words about your spouse holding on to yourself rather than giving yourself. And every time you've grumbled and complained about not having a spouse, if you want to be married and are single, Jesus died for every sin like that. Every time we've sinned sexually in our thoughts, in our fantasies, in our imaginations, every time we've sinned sexually in our actions, Jesus died for those sins. He was innocent. Of all of this, he lived a perfect life of sacrifice. He totally laid his life down for others. He was not married, but as a single man, he laid his life down for others and for you and me, literally laid his life down, took the punishment of our our sin upon him. And so today, when we read this passage, if you find yourself anywhere in there as a sinner, if you find yourself convicted about anything, shamed, ashamed of anything, then you should receive the forgiveness of Christ. He used to say, Jesus lived so that I'm accepted to the Father and obeyed in every way, and Jesus died to forgive all of my sins. But he also died and rose to make you a different person, not only to forgive you, but to give you power to change and to be a different person. And sometimes that's a simple act of repentance. Lord, I see sin in my life. I see selfishness in some way from this passage, and I am asking you to forgive me. But sometimes it's not just a simple act. Sometimes we need help. There are thorny issues. That's why I opened the message saying, Paul does not give us a theology of marriage, a theology of single life, a theology of divorce. He's answering questions of the Corinthians. So he gives us targeted material that helps us. We may need to look elsewhere in the Bible for more material, but he gives us a targeted material here to help us understand. Um, But these are thorny issues. I get that. And that, we've been talking about community in this whole series. You may need to get help in your life. Um, God provides community to help us. If the cancer of selfishness is killing your marriage, get help before it's too late. Ask for help. This passage talks about marriage as giving, and some of us aren't there, and we're dangerously close the end of a marriage. God can restore your marriage. God, by his grace, can help you. So you may need to ask for help. If you are not giving within the context of your marriage, not just generally, though that is part of it, selfishness, but in what Paul says, what God says specifically, if you're not giving yourself sexually, as Paul describes, if it's for some kind of hyper-spiritual reason, like Paul is talking about, then read this, be corrected, and go have sex. It's that simple. If it's like, this is hype, I'm holy, this is spiritual, knock it off. It's not spiritual, it's dangerous. And go resume your sexual relationship. But my guess is those of us who struggle in this area, that's not what it is for most of us. It's not what the Corinthians are going. So if you struggle, perhaps because you have been abused in your past and you read something like this, it's very difficult for me to think about 
someone else having authority, my, my giving, me willingly giving myself to my spouse. God is compassionate towards your pain and God will help you over maybe a process, but you and your spouse should ask for help if you haven't. It may be a physical challenge. Maybe you're not giving yourself sexually. Maybe it's difficult or even impossible because of some physical things are going on. If you haven't, maybe the application for you is to see a physician. Maybe that's where, maybe that's the answer or could provide answer if, the phys- if it's a physical challenge. Um, you may have a relational breakdown in your marriage where there's so much bitterness, so much unforgiveness, so much resentment that there's no desire to give. There's a desire to withhold. There's a desire to withdraw because you don't feel relationally connected. If that's you, then ask for help because those things can be changed. That's one I can guarantee can be changed. Forgiveness, resentment, the gospel addresses those issues and God can help us. So you may be able to get help from a trusted friend. You may be able to get help from a community group leader or a pastor. You may need to get help from counseling. You may need to get help from a physician. I don't know, but whatever, and you will need prayer, whatever the route is. So I don't know what your particular situation may be here, but whatever it is, I think the scripture calls us to, we're broken sexually, we're broken relationally, we all have challenges, but calls us to something moving towards what we read in this passage. This is God's ideal and there's grace to move towards that. I would just encourage you in. And for all of us, for none of us to be thinking, this is about my gratification and my taking. No, this is about each of us saying, this is my joyful giving because marriage is giving to another. Uh, If you're single, Well, I've got a passage coming for you. We love you. Uh, I've got a message coming for you that at least is going to address it more than I did today. But if you're struggling, if you're burning, as it says there, you may need to ask for prayer. Ask for someone to help you and to pray. If you're discouraged because you don't feel called to be single, you want to be married, probably you've already talked to someone about that, but ask someone, invite someone in the community to help you. If you are contemplating divorce, get help. Get help. It could be biblically that there is a biblical reason for a divorce. I don't know. I I shared the two reasons earlier, but I do know that you need help. And if you've been divorced for unbiblical reasons and reconciliation is not possible, if that is the case, then you need to receive the Lord's forgiveness and not live in shame. This is not the unpardonable sin. This is, not the, this is not the stigma that you wear a mark for the rest of your life as a divorced person, even if it was on grounds that, that are not uh, what the scripture would endorse. Uh, there is grace. Maybe you need help to receive the forgiveness of the Lord so that you don't walk in shame and you receive the welcome of others and don't feel looked down upon somehow that, you, that there's some mark on you as if anybody in the room could be throwing stones about relational sin. We all have our weaknesses and our sins. All of us, let's be people that seek to circle around those who are not only in our situation, but who are at different places. There's a lot of people that are identified in a passage like this. A lot of people struggling, a lot of people discouraged, some hopeless in a marriage or in their single life with their sexuality. Maybe it's not their sexuality. Maybe it's just how you relate in your marriage. Maybe it's just gone very sour and very broken. 
And so we want to do whatever we can to help one another. We want to do, we want to pray. We want to ask for help. We want to invite others into a process with us. And let's also be a people that celebrate. We're talking about this as a pastoral team. How can we celebrate and equip and strengthen marriages? And how can we celebrate and equip and strengthen single folk called to a celibate life for the glory of God? How can we take the various callings that God places us in, in those two ways, and give strength and by the Holy Spirit's power, wind in your sails uh, so that we're all growing and not growing stagnant, but growing in the Lord. We're all broken, we're all sinful, but Christ brings forgiveness and Christ brings change by his power. And if the Corinthian church can receive the grace of God, and we find out in the next letter, ladies are studying it in the Bible study, but we find out in the next letter, there's changes that happen in Corinth. If God's grace can be for the Corinthians, God's grace can be for us. It's one of the encouragements of reading Corinthians. You go, okay, Grace Church is jacked up, but we're not Corinth yet. And so that's really good. Sometimes I'm just relieved to go, wow, it could be a lot worse than any of our lives. You read here and go, wow, well, at least I knew that. I mean, I could be better than, you know, so at least you look at the Corinthians. We shouldn't judge ourselves compared to others, but you know what I'm saying? There's a grace that comes and saying, God worked through them and God will do the same with you. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.